We're looking at the uh, introduction of uh, New Testament truth in the Gospels, and we see that in the chart, and we were talking about the Upper Room Discourse. There's a line of demarcation in the Gospels in the Upper Room Discourse. So now we've been talking about at this point, all of the Gospels are to be believed, but not all of the Gospels are to be practiced. So now in the Upper Room Discourse, and remember we talked about it last week, when Judas left, now the Lord begins to talk about things that are going to happen in the future. So chapters 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17, he begins to tell what's going to happen when he goes away. And notice a lot of these things are future, future things. And so that's what we, and we can see that when you look in the epistles, and the apostles expanded upon the foundation of the things that the Lord taught in the upper room. Things that were going to happen. John chapter 14. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Wasn't possible before the day of Pentecost. Moses wasn't in Christ. Um, Abraham wasn't in Christ. Samson wasn't in Christ. None of those Old Testament prophets, you would have to be a contortionist, a spiritual contortionist, and many people are, to put these people in the same kind of content of salvation that believers have today. You would have to take scripture and bend it and twist it to the point that it's unrecognizable to reach these conclusions. And it ain't close. It's not even close. And I would submit to you, a lot of the confusion in the church today is a, an inability to make these kind of distinctions. And that's why there's widespread confusion in your churches today. And so people don't know what they should live by. Do we live by the Old Testament? Do we live by grace? Is it law? Is it grace? And you've got people all over the place. They're all over the place. And a failure to consistently make these kind of distinctions. So... We talked about this last week, and I just wanted to um, look at John 16, because you have communication is, is, has changed. And we talked about this last week in our chart. But here's the thing. You see this today with you, a lot of people. They don't know. Who do we pray to? Oh, I'm praying to Jesus. Oh, Jesus. It sounds so wonderful to pray to Jesus, doesn't it? Oh, Jesus. Jesus, help me. Jesus, do this. Jesus. Now, is that how you're supposed to pray today? Absolutely not. And we have a scripture. John chapter 16, notice in verse 23. You don't pray to the Holy Spirit. There's one person that you are supposed to communicate with today, and that is to the Father in the character of the Son. This is how the Father has asked that we talk to him. John chapter 16, verse 23. And in that day, notice, future He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future from when he was speaking in the upper room. In that day, you shall ask me nothing. Well, why are people still praying to Jesus? Now, am I making this up? I mean, words matter, right? You can see this with your own eyes. In that day, you shall ask me not one thing, really. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. And um, ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Do I even have to expand on this? You don't need a Greek scholar to tell you what this is saying. It's clear. This is what's interesting is most of the things that people are misapplying in the gospel, these are not things that turn on language. They just turn on you being able to read and keep things in context. It's, it's not that difficult, really. And it's, it makes it even more amazing that it's, it's not being taught accurately that way. And so... Here you have, and I don't know, and you've, you've heard people say a lot of communication today is to Jesus. Great much of communication today is to Jesus, and yet we have verses that say don't do it. 
That's not who you communicate to. That's not who you're praying to. It's all communication is directed toward the Father and the character, not just in the name. And we kind of joke about that around here because, you know, you can really end your prayers without saying in Jesus' name. And that's not heresy. It's kind of odd to do because we're used to saying in Jesus' name. But I want you to know that that doesn't seal it. If you forget to say in Jesus' name, oh, well, well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but in Jesus' name, name here is talking about in the character of the way that the son would do it. That's what, he, that's what he's getting at here. Now, we don't understand that today, but back in the day, you would say that this person had a good name. He had a good reputation. His character of, was of, of such that you could speak well for him. And that's what we're getting at with that. And so you, so as you get into the upper room, and one other thing before we leave this is that you see in, in chapter 17, and, and we, you know, make this point, and I don't think that it's a point that is not well taken, that the true Lord's Prayer is right here in chapter 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not Matthew chapter 6. And let's just let me show you, and I, I don't want you to, to leave you with my opinion of it. Look at Luke chapter 11, and we'll see why he told them how um, to pray in the way that he did. Why did the Lord tell them to pray in the prayer that most people today call the Lord's Prayer? I don't know why they call it the Lord's Prayer, because it's never really said that that's the Lord's Prayer. But read through the 17th chapter We'll kind of look at some of it, um, and you'll see that this is a totally different kind of prayer. And some of the things he says in that prayer probably will shock you. Luke chapter 11. And it came to pass, verse 1, that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Right? So now we can assume the prayer that he taught them in Matthew 6, and you find it in, uh, later on in Luke, is the prayer that John, and is similar to the prayer that John taught his disciples. And that is not the way that we pray today. And it's interesting to, to me that you see this, even with your unsaved. They may not know anything else, but they know how to recite that. And only in times of crisis. <laughs> And they say they come up with the Lord, with so-called Lord's Prayer. But here in chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Just look at some of the things that he says here. Some of these things will shock you. Verse 1, he says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may uh, glorify thee. And thou hast given him power. Already it's uh, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth, and I have finished the work which thou gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou hast given me out of the, the world. Thine they were, and thou gave them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. And I have given them uh, unto them the words which uh, thou gave me, and they received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now notice here in verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. <gasps> oh my goodness. Oh boy. That's not something we would say in our churches today, right? Now why would he say that? And so notice, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. And all uh, mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And the reason I point that out is because everybody thinks today, everything's but the world. 
The church is for the world. Everything's about the church doing everything for the world. Isn't that the, hum the cry today? And what's neglected? The body. The body of Christ. And they've, they've taken the Bible and they've turned it all, they've, they've turned it upside down. And so notice in verse 11, and now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name thou, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. So now he's anticipating going away. And he's talking about the plan of what's going to happen initially for these disciples and, and ultimately for um, others that are going to believe because of these guys. And so notice he says again, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. You see? that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee they also may be one in us that the world might believe that thou hast sent me now this wasn't possible before he went away I don't know if language means anything he's talking about future things it wasn't possible there is a totally different relationship that believers have toward the Son than the disciples did during his earthly ministry. How can they all be the same? How can you water this down and make it seem like nothing has changed? This is why the church is in the shape it's in. This is why the church is failing today. A failure to make clear delineations between what the Lord said was going to happen and what happened during his earthly ministry. And you have people who are constantly taking the Gospels and reapplying them to the church today. And it has caused major confusion in the church. Major confusion in the church. And so... Uh, and so you just see this as you look through. Uh, he's in anticipation of going away, and uh, he's talking about things that are going to happen uh, as he goes away. And notice in verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Totally different relationship. So today, we have this situation that Paul talked about in the epistles, and it's, you can see it over in the 15th chapter. So here we have this relationship. Actually, it's a, two things that's happened. You have what is called resurrection life, and so here's me as a believer. I'm in Christ, And, well, no, we won't do it that way. It would have exactly happened this way. And Christ is in me. So this, I am in Christ, we would term resurrection life. And this, why would we call it resurrection life? We get it out of Romans chapter 6. That we've been buried together with Christ. We've been raised together with Christ. We, uh, uh, we died together with him. So, resurrection life. And this, me and Christ, is what? Our Christ and me is what? Excuse me? Eternal. Eternal life. Yeah. As I count this life to be who I am, the Holy Spirit produces this life in me that is already indwelling in me wasn't possible before the day of Pentecost. Not ever possible before the day of Pentecost. Not one single solitary Old Testament saint coming up to the day of Pentecost ever had this happen. Ever. Ever. This is what godliness is. 
Godliness was a mystery before the time that Paul revealed it. Nobody knew about it. That God could allow his life to be seen out in human flesh, it was not possible before the day of Pentecost. And so let me show you one of that verse again, and this is important to mark down. Mark this. This is a really important verse in Mark chapter 10. Notice in verse 30, because this is a summation of what he says to all of those people who followed him during his earthly ministry. And so notice he says um, in verse 27, and Jesus looking up to them said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, lo, we have left all, and I would say all things, and have followed thee. Now notice, he's not just metaphorically saying we have left all in our minds. Oh, I've left Oklahoma in my mind. I'm no longer there. No, that's not what he's saying. He's going to tell you here, it was more than just a mental ascent to following him. They literally left everything. And so notice he says here, verse 29, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house. That looks kind of real, doesn't it? Brethren, sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels, that he shall receive a hundredfold now, in times, houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and with persecutions, and in the, remember, world there is it's actually the, in the uh, original age, big difference between those two words. And in the age to come, what are they going to get? Eternal life. Now, if they are going to get eternal life, I mean, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of how my mind works. If he's saying that they're going to get eternal life in the future from the time that he's talking, would we not be correct in saying they didn't have it then? I mean, is that a stretch? Am I allegorizing that? I think it's pretty clear from the context here. That's what he's saying. They didn't have it. Now, how do we get it today? Look at 1 John 5. First John 5, notice in verse 11. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. Now, isn't that different? So John is telling the believers at Ephesus, we have eternal life. We have it right now. Now, this is an important thing because I used to think as a kid growing up, oh, I'm going to get eternal life. And I always saw eternal life as something I was striving to get in the future. That it was a future thing. And there's a lot of believers who believe that today. That eternal life is just something you're going to get out there in the future. And they only see eternal, eternal life as longevity of life or length of life. But here's the thing that we don't, didn't understand that scripture clearly teaches. Eternal life is just not the extent of life. It is also a quality of life. It's a quality of life. And you get it at the moment that you're saved. Every single believer. That's why there's no excuse for any believer not to reach God's opinion of who he says they are. Not one excuse for any single believer. We have everything that we need to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish on this earth. Nobody's going to be able to say, I didn't have what I needed. Not one single person. And so notice, he goes on to say, and this is the record God has given to us eternal life. And how do you get this life? This life is in his son. So the son possesses eternal life. Now, because the son is indwelling us, we also have eternal life. We have eternal life. Every single believer that believes the facts of the gospel, Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and raised again on the third day. Every single believer possesses eternal life. Every single believer possesses eternal life. And so, he that has the Son has, uh, is, uh, is continually having that previously mentioned life. 
He that has not the Son of God has not life. Here's the line of demarcation between the believer and the unbeliever. The unsafe man is sitting over here, and he's like a dead man. I like the way that Don puts it. You go up to a dead coffin, and he said he saw someone at a funeral who went up to the casket and said to their relative, Get up! Get up! <laughs> right? Now, that would have been a neat thing to happen, right? Do you know that's exactly what's happening when you talk to an unsafe man and tell him to stop doing some of the crazy stuff that they're doing? You might as well go up to a dead man in a casket and tell them to stop or to get up. It's the equivalent. Why? They don't have the life that you have. They don't have the life that you have. They're dead. They are spiritually dead. And so we don't always have a full appreciation for that and how different that is um, with the believer and the unbeliever. And so this thing of the um, differences and um, uh, how love uh, is being manifested today. And we saw that last week, eternal life, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we clearly saw that the, the Holy Spirit, this is a huge one today. The Holy Spirit was not in existence or not indwelling anyone before the day of Pentecost. And so let me give you one of the best verses that you can see to see that. And notice in John chapter 7 and verse 39, as the Lord was at the feast uh, in Jerusalem, uh, <clears throat> we have this stated about the Holy Spirit. In verse 37, he says, In the last days of the great feast, the day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried and sang, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a huge thing. So then you understand, if they didn't have the ability to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit like we have today. So we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He illuminates us. He was the one that convicted us in order that we might be saved. He convicted us of sin. Uh, they didn't have any of that. And so we look at these guys over here and we say, oh, what a bunch of bumbling guys. They're just... Look at some of the stuff they're doing. They're arguing with each other uh, as they're walking down the road with the Lord as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It's just doing stuff that you say, what, what, is these, what are these guys doing? Uh, Peter telling the Lord, there's no way I'll ever deny you. Then the little girl says, you were one of them. Oh, no, I wasn't. <laughs> just, these guys did not have the capacity that you and I have today. Now, it's not ex explains all of it away. We see in Luke 18 that some of these things were hidden from them. They couldn't know it. And so God did not uh, allow them to understand some of those things on, on that side of this dispensation, which is important to know. So now at the bottom of page 47, the sacrifices of the believer priest. And this is something that is really different. So nobody will argue the fact that... Um, up to the day of Pentecost, we have established the fact that they were under law. Being under law, they brought sacrifices. Now, I don't know, but we somehow, we, we just, we see that and we read it, but somehow people do not equate the fact that you can't be bringing sacrifices under law and also have the church back here. <laughs> it doesn't work. And look at Luke chapter 2 as an example. So as they brought in the Lord Jesus, notice they did after the custom of the law. In chapter 2 and verse 21, And when the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, strict, straight out of the law, straight out of the Mosaic law, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses. Now, how can we have the law of Moses and they be adhering to the law of Moses? And we also have doctrine for the church here. Does that make any sense? I, I, sometimes it just leaves me speechless. These are not complicated issues. 
They're just a matter of letting Scripture say what it says. According to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him into Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it was written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And this was uh, a sacrifice consummate to one who was of meager means. They're offering up sacrifices. Do you know today? I've not seen Carl bringing these sacrifices to church. Guys, have any lambs that you want to bring to sacrifice? Turtle doves? People know and they inherently see that they don't do this. But for some reason, what happens is that we morph into this, this metaphorical thing, this allegory. Oh, he wasn't really talking about literal turtle doves. He's talking about the turtle doves of your life. <laughs> Bringing the turtle doves of your life. And this is the craziness that ensues. Because you can't make it fit literally. So now it's just based upon what kind of imagination you have. And I, and I told you, I've been around some people that have had some great imaginations. I watched a guy some years ago preach a... He was wanting to talk about how supreme the church was. And he used the supreme pizza <laughs> as a comparison to how supreme the church was. I was wondering if his text was Pizza Hut because he didn't use it from scripture. He starts off with the supreme pizza. And then he goes on. And just all this, if, when you do that, it's all about how great your imagination is. Not how great scripture is. It's just... Some people have great imaginations and they can make things sound like they're so real and it doesn't matter how much you make them sound real. If it don't line up with scripture, it's still not true. And so here you have that we offer up today, not physical sacrifices, but we offer up spiritual sacrifices. And you don't see this come on board until on the other side of Pentecost. None of these guys over here were offering up these spiritual sacrifices. Not one. And so notice the offering up the spiritual sacrifices is unique to believers in this dispensation of grace. The word for sacrifice is the word thusia. Now, Isby uh, defines this word as a presentation to deity of some material object, the possession of the offerer as an act of worship. It expresses homage, gratitude, and need. Vines defines it as uh, the act of offering up that which is offered. And so there are positive and negative results of sacrifices in Scripture. Some sacrifices accomplish the intended goal. Uh, the sacrifices under law, which extended through the Gospels, serve to purify the tabernacle and the vessels in it. You can see that in Hebrews 9. Sacrifices were made for sin under law. Hebrews 5.1. Now, do, have, you, have you guys sacrificed for your sins here lately? Under law? Uh, Jeanette? Got any heifers that you, you brought to, uh, to offer up sacrifices with? <laughs> anyway, moving right along. <laughs> sacrifices in Scripture testify concerning the righteousness of some. Some sacrifices in Scripture fall short of God's desire. Um, and so let's look at uh, Hebrews 10. This is an example of this, of the ones under law. Hebrews chapter 10. And so a theme that I would give the book of Hebrews uh, is that we have something better. And so Paul is presenting an argument to these Jewish believers that wanted to go back under law. That we, Why go back under law when we have something better? Better high priest, better covenant, better promises. It's all better. It's better than the law. That's the, I mean, it's right here for anyone to see who wants to see it. It's right here in the book of Hebrews. Now, he's going to talk about the insufficiency of the sacrifices under law. Verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto mature. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? 
because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For notice, this is very important to see, verse 44, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. That word you wouldn't, you would not, you didn't desire but a body you had prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifice for sins thou had no pleasure. Then said he, said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written to do thy will, O God. Above when he says sacrifice and an offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou would not, or did not desire, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. The old covenant, gone in this dispensation. And you got people, they won't offer up sacrifices, but they, and this is kind of how it goes with some people. They say, oh, we're not under the, um, a ceremon- uh, the ceremonial law, but we're under the moral law. And they parse it that way. Oh, they, they want to get under law in some kind of way. And it's interesting what people do. Uh, you have these people who are demagogues, and what they want to do to force people back on the law is they pull out names that they call you. One of the fancy names they want to call you is they want to say, oh, you're antinomian. You're antinomian. You're lawless. Because you're saying that you're not, a, you're not for the Mosaic law. You're just law- lawless. You're antinomian. You're against law. Well, I've come up with a nice way of saying this. We're not under law. We're not against law. There's nothing wrong with the law, and you can see that in Romans 7 as an example. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with people. And you can see that again in Romans chapter 3. The law was perfect. It's people that was the problem. One little problem with this nasty thing of the sin nature, you know, and you bring up law, and and it just really inflames it. And so... um, you just see this. So what, what you want to see, and, and I would add to this, look at Romans, the third chapter. <clears throat> and this is not in your notes, so you can add it to it. And we always throw some extra bonuses in there. Uh, hopefully they're helpful. And so in Romans chapter three, the cross looked backwards as, and as well as looking forward. So <clears throat> Christ was saving men on the basis of the death, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, those sacrifices didn't save them. He was always looking at the fact that there was an ultimate sacrifice coming. Those sacrifices didn't save them. And so when this, he, he, the cross looked back and took care of the sins that were in the past, as well as the sins that are in the future. Now here's the difference, though, that you have to be careful of. God knew that. But guess what? He didn't tell people about it. Now, don't you know things that you have plans for? You don't tell everything that you have planned to everybody, do you? I hope not. Yeah, I hope you're not like these people who get on the Internet and say, I'm going to be on vacation next week. (laughs) Just programming to everybody that they're going to be out of town, inviting the robbers to come to their house. I hope you don't do that. God doesn't tell everything that he has planned to do. He didn't tell these Old Testament saints that he was basing what was happening with them on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's exactly what he was doing, and we have a verse for it. Notice in Romans chapter 3. Notice in verse, um, but we'll pick it up in verse, verse 23. For all have sinned, or I would actually say all sinned. And keep on coming short of the glory of God. And so when did we sin? We all sinned in Adam. Every single one of us. And you say, well, if I was in that position, I wouldn't have done what Adam did. Well, I wonder. <laughs> and we, we can't handle what we have right in front of us. makes us think that we could have handled that. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That propitiation is a place of satisfaction 
through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. You see? And so the sacrifice of Christ took care of those sins that God forbore with in the past. Uh, to declare, I say, his, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be uh, just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus. And so then he goes on to say where it's boasting. And so uh, you, you, they were, were uh, engaging in sacrifices. It was a, a, a stopgap measure looking toward the day that the ultimate sacrifice was going to be made. But if you would have gone back and asked Abraham or Moses, or some of those guys in particular that were under law, why they were doing this, they would not have had the context of understanding what you and I understand today. And that's important to understand. So now as a result of that, you see that we have six spiritual sacrifices that the believer offer up. You don't find these. Now, if you find these uh, on the other side of the, um, of, um, the book of Acts, let me know. I'm going to examine the Bible you have because I think it probably has been tampered with. You won't find these sacrifices. Notice the believer offers up his body a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> I beseech thee, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is really is your logical priestly service. First thing that the believer does, so you talk to somebody who's unsaved and you say, you need to get saved. I'm not going to sit up and talk to an unsaved person and try to get them to act moral. I'm going to say they need to be saved. To a believer, I'm going to say the next thing that uh, probably a believer might not have done, if he's a believer, is I'm going to see if they believe, and then I'm going to direct them here. Because when I offer up my body a living sacrifice, it's the ultimate sacrifice I can make to God as a believer priest, according to First uh, Peter 2, Everyone is a priest to God. Every single believer. And so, when I offer up spiritually a, a sacrifice to God, and, and the first one is my body, what I'm saying to God at that point is, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me, wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. My life is not my life. Right? Now, if every believer did that, I think there would be a lot less problems that believers would have. And that's really a lot of the problems that believers have. You can really see that this is the issue. Now, notice what happens when the believer does this, verse 2, and stop being conformed to not this word world there. It's actually, again, it's the word age. Stop being conformed to this age. And I believe this is legalism. But be transformed by the renewedness of your mind. So your mind, you don't have to renew your mind. Your mind has been renewed when you were regenerated. You just have to live in that mind that's been renewed. I don't have to say, renew my, renew my mind, renew my mind. This is not some transcendental meditation. <laughs> you just have to live in that area where God has already renewed your mind. And notice the result of that. That you might be able to prove or put to the test what God's will is. God's, uh, his good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. <clears throat> and so... As the believer offers his body a living sacrifice, the believer can also offer up a sacrifice of doing good. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. <clears throat> but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so for the believer, doing, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, doing that which is good, that in doing good, the believer is able to offer up a sacrifice to God. He's, it's a spiritual sacrifice that the believer is offering up to God. And I believe that this is when a believer is spiritual and he's doing these things. God accepts them as a sacrifice to himself. The believer can offer up a sacrifice of praise. Now notice in verse 15, but uh, by him, therefore, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, and he's going to tell you what praise is. Praise is this. It's, it's totally unlike what you th you've heard in Christendom that it is. 
Praise is not uh, necessarily a musical thing. Praise is this. He gives you the definition right here. We don't even have to guess. Praise is the fruit of lips giving thanks to his name. Remember what I said about name? It's character. So now, praise, so thanksgiving is I'm thanking God for something that he's given me, and I can see this, and I say, God, thank you for this food. But now you've graduated when you go to praise. Because praise is not just saying, God, thank you for this food. I'm now looking at it beyond that and saying, God, thank you for this food. You are a good God. You see? I'm attaching something he did to me to his character. And that's a whole different ballgame. I'm seeing the, the characteristics of God and how he's acting out in my daily life. And I'm not just looking at the thing. I'm looking at who God is that brought that about. That's true praise. Now, don't get mad at me. Now, I'm a, there's a pastor back in Oklahoma used to say all the time, don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. The Lord told me to tell you. <laughs> and so this, this thing of praise, I mean, people got a whole lot of mis a false conceptions about praise. A lot of them. There are people all around this fruited plain of ours who are singing to the top of their lungs and they think that they're praising God. And they're wasting their time, honestly, if it's not involving this. The grace believer offers up a sacrifice of giving. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. So when we give, and so we, we, we try not at this local church to compel people to give, to put guilt stories on people to give, because we understand that giving is a sacrifice. And it's something that a believer does when they're spiritual and it's coming from the right motivation. And so we would put with this 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that you, you don't give out of, of, out of grief and you don't give out of constraint. You give because you are offering up a sacrifice to God as a believer priest. That's why you give. And so notice here in 4.18, But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphrodites the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. You see, that's what giving is. And some of the things and the way that people try to compel people to give, it's really shameful. It's really sh I'm embarrassed. And as I've told you, I grew up in a pastor's home, so we were in a lot of different churches. And some of the, the tomfoolery that we saw re regarding giving, it's, it's embarrassing. These people are besmirching the name of our God in the way that they conduct themselves. And it's really shameful, some of these things that are going on. The grace believer offers up a sacrifice of faith. Philippians chapter 2.17. When you, so you have the gift of faith. You have the um, faith that you got when you were saved. Now there's this attitude of faith. And when you walk by faith and you act out of faith, that you are offering up a sacrifice unto God. It's Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered up on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. How, to believe, how does the believer live uh, today? According to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, uh, 5, 7, we walk by faith. And this is a problem for uh, you know, believers who are carnal or for unsaved people. If we have a church and we put the emphasis on being spiritual, there's a fair, fair amount of people who are going to have a hard time with that. Because they don't have the equipment to do it. A carnal believer and an unsaved person. They're not going to have the ability to, to rise to that occasion. And so they wouldn't understand what faith is. Um, maybe they might grit their teeth and bear it, but uh, they're not going to be able to get there. The last thing that we want to see is that the grace believer offers up a sacrifice of fellowship. And so in Hebrews, the 13th chapter again. In verse 16, uh, that word to, to do good and to, to communicate is actually a word for koinonia, to share in common, to share in common with other believers. 
And that's why he says, with such sacrifices, plural, God is well pleased. And so they have um, sharing in common with the saints in the body of Christ, uh, that there is a sacrifice that the believer is able to offer up to God as a believer priest. And let me put it with this ideal in First Peter 2, that we are, every single one of us, are priests to God. Do you know the difference is, is that Israel had this opportunity to have a priest, uh, for every believer to be a priest, for everyone in the nation to be a priest, and they turned it down. So God is now offering it to us in the body. It's not just a priest. They, they don't have a, a, a priesthood. We don't have a priesthood in the church except for every believer is a priest. Every believer. So notice and what he says here in um, verse 5. You also as lively stones are built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, isn't that what it says? Now, he doesn't just say sacrifices. That word spiritual is a huge word to describe what the sacrifices are. They're spiritual. And so notice, um, wherefore, verse 6, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Um, someone uh, translated this a holy, and it was really, you can see that, ethnos. Uh, it was a word that was used for heathen, a holy heathen. Kind of, it's an oxymoron, right? They have that, the, they would say that the heathen were set apart, a holy. It's an oxymoron. That here you are, you and I who were once Gentiles, who were apart from God, are seen as being set apart to him. It's just an amazing statement that is made there. A, and that were peculiar people. I think, who was that talking about that uh, yesterday? Maybe Don or Dan. And it's a unique, a people for a unique possession. Right? And so it's not, you have these people uh, like the, some of the uh, Mennonites and the Amish, they try to look peculiar because they're riding around in a bucky buggy or something. That is not what it's talking about. It's a unique possession. It's interesting, you see that phrase there in other places in Scripture, we won't go there. People for a unique possession. And why did he do this? And here's the, here's the kicker, wait for it, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what it's about. God's demonstrating something. He's demonstrating something in the distinctions of the Gospels and what you find in the epistles. Stop thinking that we're, that, that he can't do this because we have it better or that they were inferior. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the fact that God is revealing things and progressively he's revealed what he's wanting to show people over the period of time. We are at the apex of it. And so there's a chasm between the doctrine that was in the Gospels and what you find as you come over this transition period of the book of Acts into the epistles. A huge chasm. Much of what is happening in the church today is that that is not being recognized. And it's causing untold problems, not only in confusing people about what the church is or what we are even supposed to be doing. What is this about? What is the purpose? What's going on here? What is God doing? It's like taking science and math and English and jumbling it all together and just teaching it as one discipline. It has caused untold confusion in the church and I think also have caused people to live what I believe is a hybrid of law and grace. This is a huge issue. How do you see the Gospels? We believe all of it. But what do you practice? And what we've tried to show you here 
it is not possible to practice what you saw was going on under law and drag it into this dispensation and practice grace at the same time. You're going to cause untold confusion. People are not going to grow. And I really think this is one of the real problems in the church is why there's no, there's little, very little spiritual maturity going on in the church. And so what much of what people are calling is calling grace today is not grace at all. I don't, I, I'm convinced that most people don't understand what grace is. They say the word, but they don't know, they have no idea what grace is. And so you see people on the other side of it, they either take it as a license or they, they, they uh, add law to it. And so we conclude here. We have presented evidence that the Gospels are clearly doctrine for faith, but not for the church's practice. Making distinctions is not uncommon to other parts of Scripture. Believers today do not practice the sacrifice of animals in a temple, nor are believers prohibited by dietary restrictions. Both of these apply to Israel in the Old Testament. Furthermore, there is no believer who accurately interprets Scripture who would practice the message given for those in the tribulation period, as you see it in Matthew chapter 24. Scripture was written in progressive revelation. Today, the church stands at the apex of the revelation that God has given. Not all of the revelation is meant for the church to practice. The best way to understand Scripture is to take it literally and apply it to whom the people it has written. Proper application allows for believers to, uh, to, to believe all that God has written, but apply only that which is consistent with the provisions of this dispensation. A failure to constantly um, apply that which is proper for this dispensation leads to allegorical interpretations, which has done much harm to the body of Christ. The evidence shows that the application of the Gospels as doctrine pr uh, produces uh, contradiction in God's promises to Israel and various other areas of theology that are uh, difficult to explain. And when the Gospels are taken as doctrine for faith but not practice, uh, the believer is then directed into those truths for this dispensation that provides for spiritual maturation that glorifies God. And so I really wanted to read through this introduction, and I know it restates what I just told you, but I think it's so important, again, to reemphasize this, that this is very, very important. And I hope that uh, you can, I didn't bring the gavels, but we're at the end of the courtroom. I hope that you can slam the gavel down. It would have been nice for everyone to have had one. <laughs> and you can slam the gavel down and says, case dismissed. It is true. The gospels are doctrine for our faith, but not practice. And if you believe that, it will tremendously affect your life.